is this first question, what is physiology? The interest for the human body started a long time ago, and everything started with a question. And that question is why? Why this happens? And I guess the first questions arise, uh, arise when someone gets sick, or when we see something that is not normal. And you say, why is this? You see something on your skin, like a pimple or rash that is not usual to happen, and you say, what is this? Why is this happening? With that simple question, it started everything. And now we have all the body of knowledge in physiology. Many things can be studied in the humans. Some things cannot be studied in humans. That's why we study animal physiology. Animals help a lot to understand how the body works. And we notice that many things are similar, even in species that are less developed than the humans. But here we're going to just talk about human physiology. In a simple word, as we see in this slide, is the study of the function, how the body works. And how the body works, that's why we need anatomy, because the human body is made of organ systems. And the organ systems is made of, you tell me, the organ systems, the organs. And the organs are made of tissues, and the tissues are made of cells, and the cells are made of molecules, and the molecules are made of atoms, and the atoms are made of nothing, that's the smallest unit. So, conclusion, we need to know chemistry, which is atoms, elements, molecules, we need to know biology, we need to know molecular biology, we need to know cell physiology, and then start going up all the whole levels. So that's how the body works. And all these components of the different levels work in terms of mechanisms. There is a way that they work, regulations. That's a very important part of physiology, to know how the body regulates all these mechanisms. And many things can be explained as a cause and effect. This happens because these other things happened. You get a rash on your skin because you ate something that was not a food that was not well preserved, or there was some allergen, there was something that caused an allergic reaction in you. Why me and why not my friend? Why not my brother or sister? Because it's you and your body is different than the other person. Why is different? Because you have a complete genetic, different genetic constitution. So you see how everything gets related. Everything gets related and usually we look for a cause and effect. And that's how we explain the diseases and that's how we treat the diseases. We know the cause, we just call uh, you raise the cause and the effect is gone. And everything, and everything that we're saying now, this why and things is based on the scientific method. Everything, all the knowledge that we get has been obtained by scientific method, by scientific experiments. And this is our world.
Now, this is the way that we do things in medicine based on scientific knowledge, on this big body of knowledge that is in the textbooks, in articles, journals, recent research, reports, all that. And still nowadays, we're still going beyond the limits of knowledge that was established a long time ago. What we have in the textbooks is the ba very basic things. I mean, the, the information in the textbook was obtained like five or six years ago, meaning they were reported in the articles or journals or research journals like five, six years ago. When you see a new edition of the textbook and say, with updates, well, those updates are usually from five years ago. And then it takes all the time to process, uh, to get a new book, to write it down, review it, and that's all the time it takes. If you check the references in each of the chapters, usually they refer to work that was done three years ago, four years ago. And what is going on now? Many other things. But usually now they are more at the genetic level, molecular level, trying to explain many things. So we'll mention some of these things when we get to especially the cell physiology. Questions to this point? Pathophysiology is the next thing. Because if we know the physiology of the normal, then the next question is, okay, I know the normal, and how are these mechanisms affected in the abnormal situation? And that's what the pathophysiology studies. It helps to understand the normal processes. You know the liver is one of the largest organs of the body. And where is the liver located in the abdominal cavity? In what part? Right or left? Or middle? Huh? To the right side. Middle? How about here? Is there some liver here? Yeah? Yeah? So it's here, but a little bit to the epigastric region, the left lobe of the liver, if you did anatomy, that's one of the things you should remember. Um, where, is, where are these organs? Where are all the organs located? That's very important. The liver, we know the size of the liver. We know the size of the liver is usually 14, 15 centimeters. And, but if the liver is enlarged, then that is not normal. There's something going on. And that's the difference between physiology and pathophysiology. The liver normally measures 14, 15 centimeters, but what if it's 20, 25? It's enlarged. Why it's enlarged? One possibility is that the number of cells increased, so the liver is growing. Where's another option? You can think about why the liver is getting bigger. Any idea? A tumor, that's a good one, yeah. Any other? Fatty huh? liver, yeah. It gets infiltrated with fat and it starts growing. What else? One more thing. What happens in the liver? What is the function of the liver? Filter substances, you said? Okay. How will the, the liver filters? What is filter about the liver? Yeah. Blood. So the blood gets into the liver in and out. So the liver contains blood. 
what if the liver is full of blood? It starts growing also. It's actually not increasing the number of cells, but it's getting congested with more blood. That's it. In five minutes, we're talking about cardiovascular system because the congestive liver is because usually heart disease. Fatty liver, about nutrition, tumor, cancer, or just a growth, which is not normal, but uh, that's the way how pathophysiology works. We explain the normal, we know the normal, and then the abnormal situations. And comparative physiology. We mentioned the study of animals. We study animals to understand how the body works. As I was saying, there are many uh, experiments in physiology that we have to do using animals. The main experiments in nervous system are made with invertebrates. Muscular system. We get muscles of frog. It's the same thing. The muscular uh, skeletal muscle fiber is exactly the same way. It works in the exact same way that the human skeletal muscle. So we use that to compare and things that apply, well, fine, that's how the human works. But then we find some differences and we have to establish uh, new experiments. Scientific method. How many times do you study scientific method in your life? Since you were in elementary school. There's a very, fir very first science fair. They speak about the scientific method. And then every time the scientific method, the scientific method, the scientific method. At the end, what we usually do as students is just study the knowledge that is in the books and barely perform some experiment uh, in some laboratories. But everything that you know, everything that you know in physiology, anatomy, has been obtained by the scientific method. And these are some three important characteristics of the scientific method. Scientific method is used to explain things of the natural world, things that we can see, observe, touch, feel, smell, perceive. We can explain all that in terms of a scientific method. We can use the scientific method to explain that. And everything, all the knowledge, is based on observations. Observations that they have to follow certain method, otherwise, otherwise it's just subject to bias. What is bias? Bias? Be maybe a subjective opinion of something. You see something, and um, and you say you describe it in a way that is not exact because it's affected by what you think about that. It has to be standardized. It has to be standardized. Or usually, and this is one of the things that happens in medicine sometimes. Um, probably you heard that. A surgeon is not supposed to perform surgery in a relative. And you say, why? This is a person is able to do it, but it's a loved one that is on the table. I mean, you think that patient's life is in your hands, but if it's the life of a loved one, then there may be some bias. Or for doctors, sometimes it's hard to diagnose 
the relatives because you don't want to see it. Everything is clear. The signs and symptoms are clear, but you deny, you neglect it, and you say, no, it's not. It's something else. That's bias. That's bias. Someone else has to step in and uh, make a diagnosis. Well, that's part of the scientific method, because there has to be a specific method and steps to avoid the bias. And the third one is very important, because we need to be humble to accept that we are wrong. We may be wrong sometimes. And that's hard. And that's hard because knowledge that is well established, when it's challenged, then you find, you find a lot of resistance before a new knowledge and new research is established. Uh, I'll tell you a story about this. You can find this in different textbooks. The disease called gastric ulcer. You know what a gastric ulcer is when you have a wound in your stomach because of yeah, the many factors for that. It's like an open wound in your stomach. Well, uh, if you go back to the 1960s, 1970s, if someone was diagnosed with a gastric ulcer, the treatment was antiacids, medications that will diminish or decrease your production of acid in your stomach, so the wound will heal little by little. And of course, changes in the diet and things. Okay, what happened usually was that, well, some people healed, fine, but some people came back after six months with another ulcer. And what the treatment was again, antiacids. You have to change your diet, okay? And if you were your anxious or nervous personality, well, you have to control your stress, you have to go to therapy and things, okay. Well, some people healed and some people came back after a year with an ulcer again. And that happened in some cases for two years, three years, and people were like labeled of having uh, 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 gastric peptic disease or uh, problems on the stomach, chronic ulcer. Well, some of these people, unfortunately, developed gastric cancer after five years or more. Well, in the year 1980s, 70s, 80s, there was a guy who was a pathologist. So These guys uh, see the slides of the biopsies they take during the endoscopies and things. And he observed on the cells of the stomach that there were some, like, little dots and he wondered, what is that? And everyone, the rest of the pathologies and even the books and the textbooks, um, they describe those dots as artifacts. You know, when you do microscopy and see slides, you see like dust particles or fibers, and so those artifacts. Or stain precipitations on the cells. And everyone said, well, it's artifacts. It's not, not a big deal. But he said, what if that thing is something else? And he established that there were bacteria. And again, he said, well, those are bacteria. It probably has something to do with the ulcer because he observed that those bacteria were more frequent on cells from biopsies of people with gastric ulcer. He said, there must be some relationship. And everyone said, no, those are bacteria. It's always there. Go ahead and check books or reports from 
50, 60 years ago, and it was true. Reports from 1910, 1920s, even with pictures, they show the same dots on the cells. And so, so they're probably bacteria, but there's nothing to do. They're not doing nothing there. But he said, and he insisted, what if this is something that is causing the gastric ulcer? And um, at the end, he had to design an experiment to prove this. And he did it on himself. He did it on himself. He identified the bacteria, isolated the bacteria, and ate a load of those bacteria. So he was infected by the bacteria, and he developed gastritis. And he recovered the bacteria from his own stomach and identified the bacteria. And reported, so this bacteria may be the cause of gastric ulcer and gastritis and everything. And, well, as you can guess, there was a lot of resistance. And nobody believed it at the beginning. But then even after 10 years, I'm talking about 80s, 90s probably, yeah. Campylobacter pylori, or I mean uh, Helicobacter pylori. H. pylori, commonly known. Nowadays, anytime, any, anybody that uh, comes with a gastritis or ulcer, we have specific tests to detect. If that person has the Helicobacter pylori in the stomach, and if it does, then the treatment is with antibiotics. And so we just cut that sequence, gastritis, gastric ulcer, cancer. That happened like 30, 40 years ago. So that's how the scientific method is applied and how the things work. There are many things that have been challenged nowadays, things that have been discovered, but we have to wait like some years until we started accepting and uh, little by little, uh, changing things. So that was just an example of the scientific method and how the knowledge that we know and that we study, we can be challenged at any time. How do we know the skeletal muscle fiber works? Well, we know that there's an ag a protein, it's called actin myosin, and they engage, and there's some specific mechanisms. Who has seen that? Nobody has seen that. It's a model. It's an explanation. We just make nice diagrams and explain it. It, it makes sense. It's fine, everything. But nobody has seen the calcium attaching to the proteins. and That's not molecular level. But that model is, works. It's a very good explanation, and everyone accepts it. What if some, tomorrow someone comes and says, well, that's, that's actually not accurate, and this is a better explanation. So then we have to change things that we've been learning all these years. That's a sequence of the scientific method. On all the steps, you ask a question. First thing you have to do is ask a question, find a question, and then do some research for the background. Did someone ever ask this question before? Were there some answers? Someone try to answer this question. Well, that's a background research. And after you do that and find out, then you construct your hypothesis. Your hypothesis that has to be tested with an experiment. Make the experiment and see the results. Once we get the results, we draw con conclusions and if the hypothesis is true, then we can report the results. 
and if the hypothesis falls or partially true, then I go back to the beginning and ask a question, why? You think, perhaps do more background research, modify your hypothesis, or just try again. Perhaps it was a mistake in the measurements or something that you did wrong. And that's a whole cycle of, uh, of the scientific method. If you notice, we apply this every day, every single day. We do scientific method all the time. What if you wake up in the morning and go and turn on your, uh, the engine of your car and it doesn't work? Then you say, why? Or after cursing and everything. You say, why? You do your research. What is going on here? Why is not turning off? Well, we check, double check here, double check there, high gas or not. And you say, oh, okay, probably because I don't have enough gas. That's a hypothesis. Takes with an experiment, go and see and check if there's gas or not. If there is gas, when your conclusion is that my hypothesis was false. So I have to think and try again. Many things we do in this way, we don't notice. But that's the way that the knowledge works, and that's the natural world that we think about things and we solve problems. Well, sometimes we are very biased because we don't like the conclusions that we arrive and we neglect things. But that's when we are not following exactly the, the steps of the scientific method. That's why if we are actually doing something serious in science or in physiology, we need to make a very good design of our experiment. So anyone can repeat it. Anyone can do it. We can obtain measurements that are quantifiable and verifiable and verified. We usually need an experimental group and a control group. What is a control group? What is a control group when we design an experiment? Anyone? Anyone? Like, let's say, if I want to find out, if I want to find out um, why some pregnant women or women have blood pressure, high blood pressure, so I need to get a group of pregnant women and measure their blood pressure. And what would be my control group? The one that is not a woman that is not pregnant. Mm -hmm. With high blood pressure? Mm -hmm. Or with low blood pressure? Or normal blood pressure? Normal. With normal blood pressure? Yeah, because they're controlled. Or that's the, I guess, the one that's baseline that's not pregnant. And you're supposed to compare that with the ones that are pregnant. What about pregnant women with normal blood pressure? For that too. <laughs> the difference is that we are introducing a new variable there. Yeah. If I want to find out why pregnant women have high blood pressure, I have to compare a subject or experimental group, pregnant women with high blood pressure, 
pregnant women with normal blood pressure because uh, pregnancy is a common ground and the variable that changes is the blood pressure. Now, if I want to analyze pregnancy besides, then I have to choose your control group, non-pregnant women with high blood pressure or low blood pressure even. So that's how we uh, design an experiment and depending on what I want to achieve or what hypothesis, hypothesis I want to try. Statistics. We need to know statistics. But not those statistics that many people have taken a statistics course. Did you like it? Yeah. Did you like it? Who is? Did you like it? You didn't like it. Yeah. Maybe tedious and hard to make calculations. And sometimes you get lost in calculations, you get the point of explanations. But the statistics that you need to know for analyze a scientific method or experiment is how you establish the hypothesis, how you try the hypothesis, and how statistics help to draw conclusions that are correct or incorrect. And of course, you probably need some I mean, definition of what a standard deviation is, what a median is, what an average is. Uh, but in terms of understanding, not much in terms of complex calculations, because if you are doing research, you usually don't, you don't, you don't make uh, calculations. You go and get an uh, someone expert in statistics and give you all the orientation and even uh, do the analysis partially and um, uh, help with that. But any time that we read or review some journal, we have to be careful. That's why the journals and reports are what we call peer-reviewed, which means that someone else or one or more people read those articles and read it once, read it twice, and looking for flaws, looking for problems, bias, design, uh, flaws, some conclusions that are not accurate uh, with the research. This analogy helps to understand how we do things in, uh, in physiology and physiologic experiments. Criminal trial analogy. You know, uh, the defendant, defendant in a trial process um, is presumed innocent. When someone does something and it's taken to court, um, a trial runs and the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty. So that's in, that in science, we call that the null hypothesis. Well, actually, that's a generic for everything, but in statistics and design of experiments, we call that null hypothesis. The assumption, the presumption that the defendant is innocent, we start from there. We said, until we find a proof, some evidence that goes against that fact. So we have two options, a not guilty verdict and guilty verdict. We establish that the person is not guilty if we fail to reject the null hypothesis. In other words, we fail to find evidence to deny that the defendant is innocent. 
we have to look for evidence. And guilty verdict, when we reject the null hypothesis, we find some evidence. We find some evidence so we can say the defendant is not innocent. The defendant is guilty. But saying that the defendant is guilty doesn't mean completely that the person committed a crime. It means we have evidence. Unless, and this is how it applies to the to statistics, in terms of probability. It's sometimes in many cases on, uh, on trials, and uh, there's no material witnesses. Like, nobody was there to see how that person killed someone else. But we have evidence. We have the gun, we have the fingerprints, we have uh, the blood, DNA, and so on. Well, that makes a high probability that the person committed the crime. But in some cases, we cannot establish 100%, 100% uh, confidence that that fact is true. We can establish 99%, 98% confidence, but not 100%. Same thing happens in medicine or physiology experiment or in science experiment at the end. Because now on this other slide, Let's say we start with a claim that X is a medicine that cures the disease Y. X is the medicine that cures the disease Y. That's a claim. That's a claim. That's, that may be things like uh, uh, eating an apple a day will cure cancer. That's a claim. how you work with that question, that with that claim. Well, first you establish your null hypothesis, and the null hypothesis is built on the claim. The null hypothesis is in this way, X doesn't cure Y. So you say, apple, one apple a day does not cure cancer, actually. And you work to try that null hypothesis and you work with that null hypothesis. All your effort is to prove that the apples don't cure cancer. That's what you want to try. And there are two options. Or you reject the null hypothesis, or you perform experiments and everything. You reject the null hypothesis, so you see that more people are cured with X than placebo. Placebo is nothing. Placebo is just giving water doesn't have any, any effect on the disease. Or the other option is not reject. The same number of people are cured with placebo than with the medicine X. You cannot reject the null hypothesis. You cannot say apples don't cure cancer. But you're not saying the, apple, the apples cure cancer. You're rejecting the fact that the apples don't cure cancer. You don't say, you don't say, um, um, with confidence that the apples uh, cure cancer. Is everything is in terms of percentage, probability, confidence, percentage we call, a confidence interval. Most of the medications that we use, most of the medications that we use were tried in this way. 
and that's why some med some medicines they help actually, but there is a small percentage of people that say that that's, that doesn't have any effect on me. Well, probably those people are in this small percentage that. 0.1%, 0.05% where this uh, confidence interval was not established. But if it cures, it helps the majority in our experiment, then we say, okay, this, is, this, medicine, this medicine is actually doing something. I'm not exactly saying we cure the disease with this medication. That's one of the things that we need to understand physiology and all the knowledge because everything, all the knowledge that we have has been established in this way. In terms of uh, non-hypothesis and uh, trying that non-hypothesis. That's the reason why all these medicines, drugs that we use before before we use them for people, there's a lot of previous steps, stages, or phases that they have to go through. Like in this slide, we are showing that phase one, phase one is focused on establishing the safety of that new drug. And there are many research being performed here to make sure that the drug is safe for humans. Phase two, we check for efficacy. How well the drug works. Hi. Hi. Is, are you getting internet here? Everything's cool? Yeah. Okay, I got a report that we were having problems. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. There was like a knowledge of internet in the last days, that's why. I was expecting not to have internet today, but it is working good. Phase three, we confirm the results, and you see how the number of patients go increasing. But we go to phase three, we have to prove that the, the drug is safe, and the phase two is okay, so it's actually working. It actually works. And finally, we submit this for FDA review, the phase four, where this is tried in real life patients, meaning that it's starting being used in small scale in different circumstances, just real patients with a real disease, and, uh, and then after the FDA makes the approval. But only for the FDA approval, it take, may take like three or four years. So the medicines that you are buying in the shelves in the drugstore today, they were tried like 10 or 20 years ago, probably. There are many things that have been trying now and studied will be released five, 10 years from now. Because we have to make sure that it actually works. And even after all this process, there are many medications that are re removed from the market afterwards. Some years ago, they removed one anti-inflammatory because it caused sudden death in some people. Specific people with some conditions taking that medication, they have sudden death. And of course, we cannot afford those results. We had to remove that from the market. Then there's a lot of money involved here, as you can, as you can guess. And unfortunately, sometimes it's about the money and not uh, 
not the, the natural course of experiment and things that should flow in a very uh, not delayed way, but there are other factors here that unfortunately are in play. Okay, that was just an introduction to the knowledge of physiology and how we get this uh, uh, scientific method applied to everything that we know and more specifically to the development of drugs. Questions to this point, comments? I think we should take a break, 10 minute break, and then we'll continue. Okay, let's continue the next part. In this part, we go in more into the topics of physiology. But let's start first with a brief, brief uh, description of some historic landmarks in the development of physiology. If you can see from very ancient times in Greece, there was speculation about the body function, and that's what we uh, described at the very beginning. And of course, the explanations are not uh, understood nowadays because they were based on what they saw at that time. They established the um, theory of the humors, the blood, the length, the bile, and uh, the four elements of nature. And they were, they explain things in terms that made sense for them, but doesn't make, make much sense for us nowadays. But notice the time from 384 to 322 BC to 1578, 1657. Of course, there was a lot of things happening in between, but we're talking about more than 1,500 years that the explanations Greece were still carried and there's a lot of resistance for new ideas until 1578-1557, that's the time that William Harvey in England lived, demonstrated that the heart pumps through a system of blood vessels because before this time what people thought was that the blood circulation was in this way, the blood was pumped by the heart, but then it went to the body, and when it got through the lungs, got the pneuma, or the air, but then when it get to the liver, then the blood was eliminated with the bile. And so they didn't think about this closed system of circulation that we know now that the left ventricle pumps the blood to the body and then returns to the right atrium, to the right side of the heart, and the blood circulates. And until this guy demonstrated that, and how he demonstrated that? Well, he started working in animals, started dissecting pigs, living pigs to see actually the heart pumping. And that was really shocking by that time, because nobody used to do that. And he demonstrated that, and he said, well, this actually happened in humans. Of course, they didn't open a human to see it, and they didn't even work with cadavers. So the animal demonstration was actually really shocking, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. But 
he established that knowledge, and he was there. He was there, and years after, people gather information and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's actually how the heart works. Uh, and that's a very important landmark. And uh, after that, 300 years after, Claude Bernard in France observed um, that the body works in a special condition inside the body he called the internal environment. And this internal environment remains constant to some point, so we stay alive. That was the main idea of Claude Bernard. Um, and then later, later on in 1932, Walter Cannon gave a name to that balance, constant environment of the body. And he called that homeostasis, which is the word that we use nowadays to describe that particular balance or equilibrium that we see in the body, an internal environment. Um, that keeps us alive every day. Regardless of the changes that happen inside our body, the changes outside, temperature, weather, uh, challenges, dangers, wounds, lesions, but after all, our body remains in a certain, const a certain state of equilibrium or balance. That's a copy of the book of Walter Cannon, 1932, The Wisdom of the Body. When you read these books, it's actually a very, very interesting language, and they describe this, and read, you, you read this like a novel, they describe this in a very elegant way. And hence. Nowadays, the textbooks, they are very factual, and they go straight to the, to the point, but here they describe it in a very beautiful way. That was the style of the time. So let's go more into physiology and give more ideas about this homeostasis and what it actually means. Now let's start with this table right here. This table is showing normal ranges, normal ranges of fasting blood values. This is what we get when we ask or order some blood test um, because someone is complaining of some sign or symptom. <clears throat> and we get this from the lab. For instance, we can get this result that we see at the very bottom, glucose, glucose in the blood. They measure that in the, in the lab. And we get that result, 75 to 110 milligrams per 100 milliliters. Or another way, uh, other words, other way of saying it's 75 to 110 milligrams per cent. But anyway, in the unit, notice the number, 75 to 110. That's a normal range. So that means that if someone gets 78, well, that's normal, that's within normal range. If someone gets 100, still within normal range, even though they are different numbers. But it's normal. What if someone has 70? It is low. What if someone has 74? Would you say it's abnormal? Because it's not within normal range? 
Well, if we follow the numbers, yes, it is. It is abnormal because the, the, the low value is 75, 74 is out of that range. But it may be a problem of measurement from the lab. They messed up on one unit. You're not going to tell the patient you're abnormal. All you have to do is repeat that blood test and probably you get a normal value. And that's one of the reasons why the lab reports these numbers from 75 to 110. So we can apply our judgment and the knowledge that these numbers come from people, but not just numbers. But that range, what it's showing besides is homeostasis. The ability that we have to change those values according to the circumstance, but always within a normal range. How we establish that normal range? Well, there's a lot of studies that have been made about blood glucose in different populations, in different groups of people, and we establish this is an average. We can work with this. But I tell you, for pregnant women, maybe different. This is a value for, usually that's what we do, uh, adult um, of uh, 70 kilograms of body weight, usually that's the average. But if we have someone that falls out of that range of population, then we have to be careful with these values. But anyway, these values are showing, again, the ability that we have to change the values according to the circumstance, but within normal ranges. And that's what homeostasis is. Homeostasis is to keep the balance, to keep the equilibrium. In this case, the balance or equilibrium it is defined between 75 and 110. You're fine. It's not a problem there. What changes? What challenges? Well, that happens every day. If you eat carbohydrate-rich meal, a lot of glucose, after two hours, your blood glucose will be 200, 250, which is not in the normal range. But then, after one hour or two hours, your blood glucose will be 100 again, or 90, within normal range. So you're fine. Your body is responding to the challenge. What challenge? Well, you just ate uh, carbohydrates. Your body needs carbohydrates, but apparently they were too much. But the body will control that and regulate that and bring it back to normal. But what if the following situation? Someone eats a carbohydrate meal. We measure the glucose two hours after, 200, 250. We say, okay. And then after two hours, we measure it again, and it's 300. What would you say? That person may be diabetic. person may have diabetes. Diabetes is a problem of homeostasis of blood glucose. They cannot control the blood glucose should be, normally it should go back to 100, but it remains high, and even higher, 300. That is not normal. That is not normal. We said the homeostasis has been disrupted, and we give a specific name. This is diabetes. Same thing for the other values, and they can express different circumstances of the body, different challenges, but always the body is able to adjust, regulate this, and bring it back to within normal ranges, which is the definition of homeostasis. Well, after giving this example, let's go and describe all the
facts and features of homeostasis. Well, definitions are here. Constancy of the internal environment. A few words to define homeostasis. But think about this because we can express it in a different way. Some people may say dynamic equilibrium, which is true. Equilibrium is a, something that we know that's this desk is in equilibrium, it's not moving at all, but it's not dynamic. We are in dynamic equilibrium. The blood glucose is changing every single second. Our pulse, if you take your pulse now, it will be 80 times per minute. You take it five minutes after, it will be 85. I announce a pop quiz that will be 90% of the course grade, and your pulse will raise to 120. And then I say that's not true, and your pulse goes down to 80. So every time, every second, all these values will change. But within normal values, you will stay in normal values after the challenge. And the main purpose of this homeostasis is to keep the equilibrium, and all the physiological systems and mechanisms of the body will work towards homeostasis, to keep the homeostasis. If there's a disruption or deviation of homeostasis, then something's going on. We have a disease. Maybe a temporary change, but that's just how the body reacting to a challenge. But if it's, it remains for a long time, then we say that's a disease. We have to correct that. We have to allow the body time to correct by itself, or we have to come in and, and help. That's why we find our purpose also. Because the body, the human body, has many mechanisms to adjust, to adjust itself and correct things. That's how we, our wounds heal. We don't do anything else. We just have a wound, just take good care of the wound, and it heals by itself. Skin regrows and everything. But if it gets infected, then we have to help, giving antibiotics, creams, and cleaning the wound and things to help the body. Okay, homeostasis works in terms of loops, feedback loops, we call them. And these loops, they have components, three components to describe. The sensors, the integrating center, and the effector. Sensor is that part of the body that detects the change. That's the definition of a sensor. It's a device that detects something. Well, we have cells that detect changes. Changes and send that information to the integrating center, which is a group of cells or system that will receive that information. The integrating center has a set point defined And depending on how that change is within normal ranges or not, meaning how far from the set point is, it will send instructions like an output to the effector, which is another group of cells that will make things, or make or correct things, adjust things, adjust variables to oppose or counter the initial change. Sensor, integrated center, and effector. 
Are we clear to this point? Yes. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure I understand the concept. Is that what tells us if something is wrong with the body? Yeah, homeostasis is composed of what we call feedback loops. Those are the mechanisms that regulate this equilibrium. And the components of these loops, of these mechanisms, are the sensor, integrated center, and the effector. Now, the sensor detects information, like a change in the temperature. And we have receptors on the skin to detect that. That will be sent, that information will be sent to the integrated center, which is in the brain. And the brain knows what is the normal temperature for our body. Okay? And if that information says that the temperature is too low, then the integrated center, the brain, will send an output, a message, to effectors, which are organ cells, like muscles, skeletal muscles. And the muscles are ordered to start contracting, shaking. We have chills. So we produce heat. Heat because the temperature was too low. Now, if something is wrong here, it will not detect it properly. The integrating center is not uh, sending correct information to the effector, or the effector is not working, then we have a problem. If one of these components is failing, then the homeostasis will fail, and we can have a disease. Like, for instance, the integrated center, like in the case of the temperature, the brain, the part called the hypothalamus, there's a temperature set point there. So those neurons, they know, they have the set point, they have the information that 98.6 is the normal temperature. And the body temperature must be maintained at that level. We have an infection, we have an infection, and some bacteria will make substances called endotoxins, and some of them will attack the hypothalamus and disrupt the set point. And now the neurons have the set point wrong. And the neurons kind of believe that the set point is 100. And so the body will react to keep the temperature at that new set point, which is 100. What we have? Fever fever because of the effect of these toxins that the bacteria produce. So we are problems with homeostasis now. The integrated center has been modified and uh, changed. Until we control the infection and the toxins are gone and the bacteria are dead and the hypothalamus returns to the set point 98.6 which is the normal temperature, fever is gone and we're fine. So that's how the homeostasis is um, managed in our body. We can define this or describe this in terms of loops as we see here. We see the three components, the sensor integrating center and the vector. And um, here we see the sensor. If the variable x goes up, whichever it is, maybe temperature, blood glucose, anything. If that goes up, that is detected by the sensor. The sensor sends that information to the integrated center, which may be a group of cells, organ, brain. 
An integrated center, depending on the set point, decides to send a signal to the effector. In this case, since the variable x is going up, the reaction, the response, will be the effector will make x go down, bring it back to normal level, to the normal set point. We call this negative feedback. Why? Because the response goes in different direction than the stimulus here. That's why we call negative feedback. In this area, it's the same thing. It's just showing that when the variable x goes down, all the loop respond to make this variable x go up to go back to equilibrium. And again, since the response is in opposite direction than the stimulus, we call that negative feedback. Below we have this diagram that shows these changes in relation to the time. Normal range is all this area, the set point, which is a, val a range, of like, like the values in our, in our table from 75 to 110, well that's the normal range. When the variable x goes up, we can see the curve of the value going up. But then since the integrated center knows that we have to be maintained at the set point normal range, as soon as it gets very high, well, the effector will be activated. And this curve is brought down, but not too low. You always maintain a normal range, within normal range. Same here in the other picture. If the variable x is going down, the sensor is activated, the integrated center will respond before the variable gets too low and out of the normal range and is restored to the normal level, always within normal range. This happens all the time in every single example that we can give. Temperature, blood pressure, pulse, any other blood value that we have or chemicals in our body, always we are maintained in normal ranges by the effect of the sensor integrated center and effector of the homeostatic mechanisms or negative feedback loops in this case. These are just the definitions or descriptions of the pictures. Moves in the opposite direction from the change, makes the change from the set point smaller, or reverse the change in the set point, and this is a continuous process. All the time, making fine adjustments. That's what we're saying, that poles will change from 80 to 85 to 90, 85, 80, but always within normal range. And if you have a sudden decrease to 60 or 50 per minute, then you get sick. You have symptoms, and that may be the um, expression of some disease. Here we see it in terms of temperature control. And this is just a diagram of what we've been explaining in the previous minutes. Body temperature. body temperature arises, arises above normal, and that is detected in the nervous system 
signals to the blood vessels of the skin to dilate and the sweat glands to secrete so the body heat will be lost to its surroundings and the body temperature drops toward normal levels. But if the temperature um, drops below normal then that is informed to the nervous system. The nervous system orders the blood vessels of the skin, which will be the effectors in this case, to constrict and the sweat glands to remain inactive. If the body temperature keeps dropping, the nervous system signals muscles to contract. And we have muscle activity to generate, generate body heat. And the body temperature rises towards normal. That's how it happens. Where is the integrating center? The brain, the hypothalamus, who knows that the body temperature, normal body temperature is 98.6. The example for the blood glucose. In this case, it is a negative feedback loop, and it works in this way. The stimulus here, you eat something and your blood glucose level goes up. Now, who detects that? Who detects that? What part of the homeostatic loop? Who detects the change? Sensor, integrated center, or effector? The sensor. The sensor detects the change. Where is the sensor in this case? In this case, the sensor are cells in the pancreas where they get that information. When the blood goes around the pancreas, the cells detect that the glucose levels are high. Where is the integrated center? The same cells of the pancreas. And they get that information and assess this is not normal. Okay. What is the effector? The effector are the same cells of, of the pancreas. And the effector, what it does is to produce insulin, this hormone. Pancreas secretes that insulin. And the insulin will make the glucose be taken by the liver and by the body cells. Glucose will be taken by the liver and by almost every single cell in the body. And now the glucose will start getting lower in the blood. They return to homeostatic normal blood glucose levels. People with diabetes, they have the pancreas damaged in cases of diabetes type 1. Diabetes type 2 is not working properly not producing enough amount of insulin. But in the case of blood glucose, sensor, integrated, and effector are in the same pancreas. In other loops, like in the temperature, the sensors are in the skin sometimes, or in the same uh, brain cells. The effector are in the blood vessels, muscles. But always following that, uh, those components, sensor, integrated, and effector. When there's a negative feedback system and the effectors 
send orders to muscles, blood vessels, whichever cells, to oppose initial stimulus, we call that antagonistic effector. Like with the examples that we've been given, when we're hot, we sweat, when we are cold, we shiver. Those are antagonistic reactions. Or blood glucose levels, blood pH also works in the same way. Move the things in opposite direction, bring them back to homeostasis. And then a curve can be expressed in this way. It goes like a sinusoid curve. When the set point, when the, when the variable changes above the set point, the effector, the antagonistic effector will bring it down. And in that way. But always around the set point. Higher or lower from the average, but within normal range. If we talk about pulse, heart rate, the lower level will be 80 and the higher level will be 100 I mean 60 here the lower level will be 60 and the higher level will be 100 average 80 but we never have 80 all the time like a flat line always going up and down going up on our around 80 we get 85, and then we get 70, 65, when we are sleeping, 60, we start walking 90, 100, but never beyond that limit, within normal limits, always. And for the case of temperature, we have here 37 Celsius or 90, 98.6, same thing, our body temperature changes in that way, within normal ranges all the time. saw that table already well if there's a negative feedback there must be a positive feedback and it actually is positive feedback if we know what negative feedback is and we can define positive feedback negative feedback the effect or the response goes in opposite direction than the initial change in positive the reaction goes in the same direction as the initial stimulus the best example for this is what happens during childbirth. During childbirth, what happens is that the uterus starts to contract. The wall of the uterus contracts. The muscle. And this muscle contracts by the action or a uh, uh, responding to the, to the effect of oxytocin, which is a hormone produced by the brain. The oxytocin stimulates uterine contractions. And when the uterus contract, it squeezes the baby inside and it pushes the baby towards the pelvis, towards the cervix, which is the entrance to the uterus. Here in this area, this, the head of the baby is pushing against the cervix. Well, that is a stimulus that is sent to the brain 
and the brain stimulates this gland, pituitary gland, to secrete oxytocin, which is the hormone that promotes uterine contraction. And the oxytocin reaches the uterus and stimulates uterine contractions. But then, head of the baby pushes against the cervix, and that stimulus again goes to the brain and makes the pituitary gland produce more oxytocin. More oxytocin gets to the uterus, more contractions. More contractions pushes against the cervix, a stimulus for more oxytocin and more contractions. So the initial stimulus and the response go in the same direction, and that's how the labor goes on and childbirth happens. Facts about the positive feedback. The end product in a process is stimulates the process. The action amplifies the changes that are stimulated the effector. The response go in the same direction as the initial stimulus. That's what happens in positive feedback. Now this positive feedback it's not forever. There must be a point at which it stops. And it stops when it gets linked to a negative feedback mechanism. That will make this stop. In case of childbirth, the uterine contractions keep going, keep going, get stronger every time until the baby is born. And after the baby is born, no more oxytocin. It's negative feedback. But the childbirth and labor, per se, is an example of positive feedback uh, mechanism. Another example for positive feedback is seen in the blood, blood coagulation. When we have a damage to a blood vessel, we have a wound or something, the blood, the bleeding will stop by itself. Of course, if the injury is minor and the hole is small in the vein or in the artery, it will stop by itself, it will stop bleeding. That's coagulation. We have a mechanism that makes the blood coagulate, forms a clot, and we stop bleeding. But that mechanism works in this way. If there's a break or tear in the blood vessel wall, we'll start bleeding. But then what happens is that these cells, called platelets, who are running in the blood, will detect that hole and will come to the place, to the hole, and get together. They will adhere to the site, to that wound, and release chemicals. Those chemicals will attract more platelets to the site, to the wound. And more platelets will adhere, forming a bigger clot. Since these are new platelets, they will release more chemicals. And more chemicals will bring even more platelets. And you see how the response goes in the same direction as initial stimulus. More platelets, more chemicals, which bring more platelets. And so on. And so we have a lot of platelets here, and they will plug the hole. And we stop bleeding. Again, this won't last forever. 
there's another negative feedback mechanism that will be linked that will stop this formation of clot. Now, the regulation of these processes, either negative or positive feedback, they happen in two ways. One way is called intrinsically, and the other one is extrinsically. Intrinsically happens inside the one organ, within the organ. We have the sensor, the integrated center, and sometimes the response, like in the case of the pancreas. Everything happens there in the pancreas. Or extrinsically, like the brain, like in the control of temperature, the sensors may be in the skin, the integrated centers in the brain, hypothalamus, the effector is in the smooth muscle and the skeletal muscle or the blood vessels. So the regulation happens not in the same organ but connected to other organs. They're usually endocrine or nervous system. But the mechanism is the same. I mean, or either negative feedback or positive feedback. Nervous system and endocrine system are the two systems that regulate many, many mechanisms of this type. Homeostate, homeostasis mechanisms are usually controlled for endocrine and nervous system. Nervous system connecting through neurons, all the organs, or endocrine system, which is a group of glands, cells that produce hormones that are in the blood, circulating everywhere, and bringing messages bringing messages to every single cell of the body. This is the example for the blood pressure. The very simple thing that happens again every single day, like when we are laying down and all of a sudden stand up, our blood pressure goes down, it falls. Sometimes, if you remember this happening to you in the middle of the night when someone wakes you up or there's a loud sound, an earthquake or something, you all of a sudden stand up and you get kind of dizzy, lightheaded. And that's because your blood pressure falls because of the effect of the gravity. But then the sensors will detect that And they will send that information to the brain, which is the integrating center. Brain will order through nerve fibers to the heart muscle, which in this case is the effector, to increase the heart rate. And increasing the heart rate, the blood pressure will go up. And then we control the blood pressure, negative feedback starting with a fall and the response is a rise. Blood pressure is controlled by negative feedback, especially when we change positions, lying down, standing up and so on. 
Or in the case of hormones, same thing, but related with the insulin and uh, glucagon, which is the other hormone produced by the pancreas. But let's check this side of the diagram. We eat. After we eat, blood glucose rises. And here, sensor, integrated center, and effector are in the pancreas. They produce insulin. The cells take glucose, and the blood glucose in the blood, and the blood glucose will decrease its levels. Typical response of negative feedback. Questions coming to this point. Okay, to clarify these uh, definitions and and uh, homeostasis mechanisms. There's a couple of questions here. I'm going to project them. Hmm. It's not working. Let's see. Okay, these are questions for you. You can write them down or just read it from the screen. But what you have to do is to discuss this with your, uh, with your table, people in your group. Okay, I'm going to give you 10 minutes for this. Get the answers, and then we'll discuss the, the answers together. Okay? You don't have to turn this in afterwards, it's just for discussion. You can just read it or take notes if you want, whatever. But We'll discuss the answer after 10 minutes. Yeah, let's check the answers and discuss the answers. Question number one, it says, in response to a bacterial infection, my body's thermostat is raised. I start to shiver and produce more body heat. When my body temperature reaches 101 degrees, I stop shivering and body temperature stops going up. This is an example of what? Questions, answers. 
An answer and why? Yes. Why positive feedback? Because the body's temperature is already high, and then you're shivering to produce more heat. That's actually enhancing the initial temperature to go high, so positive. Remember the definition of positive feedback is when the response goes in the same direction as the initial stimulus. What's the initial stimulus for that positive feedback that you are describing? The body's raised temperature as a result of the infection. The body raised temperature will be the response, the effect. And what would be the initial stimulus for that? It has to be in the same direction. Something raising the temperature. The infection is the cause of this. But it's not the initial stimulus that will continue the thing. Any other idea? Just say it. Let's think together. Because that's the best thing to clarify things. Is it the thermostat raised because of the bacterial infection? The thermostat is raised by the bacterial infection. As I was explaining before, when some bacteria cause an infection, they release endotoxins. And those endotoxins hurt the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus will change the set point. The temperature now is at the set point where the temperature is raised, like what happens in this case. In response to bacterial infection, the thermostat is raised. So, our hypothalamus is set up now at a different temperature, okay? Start to shiver and produce more body heat. Why start shivering? Because? To cool the body down? You start shivering to cool your body down? The other way around, all right? The other way around. Why I start shivering? Because my set point now is 101. And perhaps my body temperature at that point is 98.6, which is normal. So my hypothalamus interprets this like this body is too low. We need to raise it up until the new set point, which is 101. So I start to shiver. I start to shiver in order for my temperature to reach 101. And when the temperature is 101, I stop shivering. And the body temperature stops going up. That's the process. That is a description of what? Positive or negative feedback? Negative feedback. It's negative. Because the temperature stops going up. It's now in the new range, which is 101 which is not normal. This is high. Now I have fever. So which other option will be answered? A malfunctional control system, which is a control system. That's the integrated center. That's, the inter that's another 
word that we use for integrating center, control center, control system. That's different words for the integrated center. So the answers here are, it's an example of negative feedback, yes. That's how it works. But at the same time, the control center, the integrated center is malfunctioning because it's being reset at a different level of temperature. Yes? So this was like an actual exam question. Would you say a malfunctioning control system is the more correct answer? No, there are two answers here. Oh, okay. Yeah. There are two answers here. Okay. Negative feedback and malfunctioning control system. Yeah. It depends. Because if I say there's more than one answer, then you have to answer both. Alright, but you'll let us know if there's more than one answer. Huh? Would you let us know? Of course. Of course. And especially in physiology, it is sometimes hard to um, uh, use a multiple choice exam because of this. If you don't correct, I mean, if you don't choose the correct expression for the answers, then you can choose two answers. And it makes sense. So that's why. So when we get the exam, we are going to, uh, the multiple choice, um, consider only one answer, unless I specify that question. There may be more than one answer in case you can choose more. Why is it a malfunction control system? What's that? Why is it a malfunction control system? It's because this control system, the thermostat, is supposed to be at 98.6. Mm -hmm. But now it's being reset to 101. That's not malfunction. Aren't you supposed to like, get a fever to fight the bacterial infection? Not normal? Not normal. No, it's malfunction in, in the sense that it's bringing the temperature. It's working. It is working, but it's malfunctioning because it's not bringing to normal values. It's bringing to abnormal because it's being reset. But don't you want it to be like higher than your regular body temperature? Is that malfunctioning? But that is not what the body is supposed to do. During an infection? During an infection, yes. Yeah. It, it, it is working. It's working with negative feedback. But that is not the normal temperature of the body. But you want it to be over normal temperature during an infection. Yeah, we agree. We agree. It is working. Yeah. It is making the mechanisms work. Yeah. But it's malfunctioning in the sense that it's not in the correct set point. It is on one one. That's that's what we say malfunctioning. Perhaps a malfunctioning word can be understood not so clearly. Because we can say it's not working at all or it's working in the other way. But it only in the uh, in the sense that it's not bringing the temperature to normal values. It is bringing it to abnormal values, which may be explained because the immune system needs to work at higher temperature sometimes, but not too high. Yes, you have another question. Oh, so I was just like malfunction as in like, like, oh, your body was supposed to be at like 90 something degrees and then you went Like when you set this new higher level, then like it's not good for 
it's good for like the bacteria because it makes you think that that's the new temperature you want to be. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, your reason is correct. Your reason is correct. So this happens in um, uh, with the body temperature sometimes. Yes. I'm sorry, I have a clarifying question. So, yeah. Okay. So here in this scenario, you catch a bacteria, and your body it's at a normal range, 98.6. But then because of the bacteria infection, you start to feel you 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 start to feel really cold and shivering. But it's not that your temperature has increased. You're still your normal temperature. Right. But you have that sensation. And that's when it triggers the brain to reset, I guess, the, the, mm -hmm. to raise the thermostat, and that's how it's starting to elevate the temperature? Yeah, okay. Let's... let's that's the that I, I just want to be able to yeah. understand, because I don't know... Yeah, let's explain the different, the whole scenario of this, or the different options that, that can happen, that actually happen. If you get an infection, that means a bacteria is getting in, into your body. Now, your body may respond in different ways. It may respond at a local level, like when you get a skin infection, okay? And the mechanisms will be all local. Even the temperature will raise, but only local here, okay? And second, depends on the type of bacteria. If it is a bacteria that works only local, the infection will be controlled by the body, and you will have no fever at all. But if the infection reaches the blood, and second, if the bacteria is one of the type of bacteria that releases endotoxins that will reset the thermostat, then you will have this problem. The bacteria may reset your thermostat to not a 101, it may re reset it to 104 or 105. And so then if you have a problem, you will have high fever, which is not supposed to happen. We understand that the body needs to increase the temperature because of the immune system a little bit, but not so high. And that's the way how we respond to the, to the infection. But if it's like this bacteria that causes the thermostat to be reset at a very high level, that is really dangerous. And that is when we say this is a malfunctional control system because it's it's bringing the temperature higher than normal, and that may be damaging other mechanisms, other cells, or enzymes, especially the nervous system. Yeah. Actually, I just thought of an example for this. It's a um, strap throat. I actually had strap throat like before, and I was burning up to like a hundred and like really, really high for like a whole week. Mm -hmm. And I finally went to the doctors, and they told me you're supposed to have fevers because it's a uh, like infection in your throat, you have bacteria in your throat. But then, like, if you keep on, if you don't like take medicine, you don't see a doctor, you keep on burning at this high rate fever, you could be brain damaged because your body temperature is too high. It could like uh, damage your nerve system, which like and then it, it goes to the brain. And like, if you have that temperature for too high, basically you could damage your brain. So that's like a malfunction. Exactly. That is a that is the point. That is exactly the point. And. Um, Sometimes we misunderstand this in, uh, in practical terms because when we have fever, we think that we should control that fever at all prices and keep the body temperature normal all the time. That's not supposed to happen either. When the body needs to increase the temperature sometimes, depending on the infection, of course, um, increase the temperature and you should maintain that level so the immune system will work better. 
and sometimes when the fever is not so high, well, they don't control your fever. When you go, you're in a hospitalized for an, for an infection, um, sometimes you stay with a little bit of high temperature all the time, and they control your temperature only if it goes too high, only if it goes too high, but not to maintain all the time to 98.6. And that's because of the immune system. But as you say, if the temperature goes really high, that, that is dangerous. That may be dangerous for the body. All right, any questions about this one? Second question, which of the following is an example of positive feedback? Which one? B. B is a cruise control set on your car applies more gas when going up a hill. What? Say it again. <laughs> so for cruise control, it's already using gas. And then when you're going up the hill, it's adding more gas. So that's adding more positive of using gas. Mm -hmm. So it's a positive feedback. What do you say? When the car is What's the initial stimulus here? So huh? the Driving uphill. Yeah. What happens when you drive uphill? You need more force. So your car is getting weaker. Relatively. You need more energy, in other words. You need more energy to go uphill, which means that you need to get more energy because you're low, you have low, relative low energy or potential energy. Therefore, that will make your cruise control to apply more gas. And if you go and apply more gas, then you go uphill. But then, still, you need more energy. You see what I'm saying? This is kind of wording thing, because it looks like going uphill will always favor and actually does. But when you go uphill, what happens is your car needs more energy. So it's getting in a relative deficiency of energy or low potential energy to go uphill. Any other idea? Yes. D. You get caught in playlist form a clot. This activates the fibrin clotting system. More blood forms clots. What is the initial stimulus here? You get cut, you're bleeding, and platelets come. And then the response is? And the blood, and more blood clots are formed. And more blood clots bring more platelets, that's what it means. And more and more and more. Well, would you choose B or D? 
D explains better, much better, that positive feedback. Question number three. This is open. So anyone wants to explain? Yes. Dehydrated, when we are dehydrated, one of the symptoms is thirst, excessive thirst. And that is a stimulus for drinking more fluids. You get, get water and your fluids are restored. You're not dehydrated anymore. Therefore, your thirst is gone. So the initial stimulus, now it's gone. Or the initial the, the thirst, the thirst variable that changed first. Now it's gone after you drink fluids. So it's going in the opposite direction. It is a negative feedback control. How would that be if it is if this thirst dehydration thing were a positive feedback? Would you not drink fluids? What happens when you don't drink fluids? Huh? You can paint. Well you still hit dehydrate. If you're dehydrated, you feel thirsty. You go and drink fluids. If it were a positive feedback, what would be the reaction after you drink fluids? You're still thirsty, and even thirstier, and you keep drinking fluids. And you become even thirstier. That's not how this works. This is not a positive feedback, it is a negative feedback. It is a negative feedback. Although it may work sometimes in that way for other types of fluids like alcohol. Drink and you keep thirsty and you can keep drinking and drinking and drinking. But that's not actually uh, uh, just water. It's other element. And that's a different story. Because when we drink fluids, the balance of fluids in our body is maintained by, of course, intake and elimination. And the elimination is by the kidneys. So if you drink five liters of water now, then you'll be going to the bathroom like every 10 minutes afterwards because there's excessive fluid. That's another example of negative feedback. You have too much, you have to eliminate it. But if you drink alcohol, what happens is that the alcohol will block certain mechanisms in the kidney and in the brain that will make you lose more fluid you will be dehydrated even though you're drinking water with alcohol. And that's why you can keep drinking. And the thirst mechanism are kind of affected there. Plus the uh, affection of the nervous system and uh, the psychological effect of uh, alcohol and the effect of the neuron will change this completely and it's not uh, working in that normal way. Okay. So just to confirm. Yeah. Positive feedback does, will, not, will not work. It's not positive feedback. It is not positive feedback. So there can be 
right right or um, usually what happens is whenever you see a positive feedback there's another positive loop or I mean negative loop that will stop the positive thing otherwise it will keep going and keep going and keep going like blood clotting we said or childbirth as soon as the baby is born then the uterus is not contracting anymore there's no more stimulus there and that's a different mechanism okay um, Let's have 10 more minutes of break, okay? All right, let's uh, go ahead with the third part of today's lecture. And after studying this uh, homeostasis uh, uh, mechanisms, let's go a little bit to the description of the primary tissues. As we said at the beginning, we need to know some basic anatomy at least in order to understand better how these structures function. And so this, what follows is a review of the primary tissues. If you did anatomy already, probably you have done this already, uh, but let's go quick and highlight in some aspects of the tissues, especially under the approach of physiology. All that is based on the levels of organization that we mentioned at the beginning also. Um, that the systems that we're gonna study and all the physiology will be based on the organs working together and everything goes back to the cellular level and to the tissue level that we're going to see here. The definition of tissues, you remember, is a group of cells working together in order to fulfill some function or with a purpose. And we only have four types of tissues in our body. Epithelial tissue, connective tissue, muscular tissue, and nervous tissue. Every single type of tissue will have different subtypes. We end up with a long list of subtypes of tissues that are studied with more detail in anatomy classes. We go and see slides and we can see the differences, how they look. And, uh, but what it's important to remember and highlight here is that every single type of tissue has that specific structure, structure with a purpose. It's usually related to the physiology of the organ where we find those tissues. Skeletal muscle is specialized for muscular contraction. Whenever we need movement, skeletal muscle, pump effect, cardiac muscle, or movement along an organ, duct, tube, smooth muscle is needed. Skeletal muscle is organized in a way that allows movement of different parts of the body. They are voluntary. We can make it contract our will at any time. And the microstructure of the muscle fiber of the muscle cell is a group of cells together uh, 
work together structurally. We call that a syncytium, meaning that early in the development, they are small cells, but all of them get together, they fuse into a long muscle fiber. We describe the skeletal muscle fiber as multinucleated. And the reason is that it has to be long in order to reach bone to bone, depending on the distance from bone to bone. And they are organized inside the cell in striations, which is based on the molecular structure of proteins called actin and myosin. Multinucleated fibers, we see the nuclei pushed against the wall and inside the cytoplasm, or sarcoplasm, that's how we call it, we find all these striations which look like bands running across. When we get to the muscular tissue function, we're going to study how these proteins contract and what they need to contract in calcium, ATP, and neurotransmitter, and, and uh, we'll get again to review some of these concepts of striations. Cardiac muscle only in the heart. It has striations but they are not that long. They are short, branched, interconnected, physically, and what is more important, electrically. Involuntary muscle. This electrical connection between every single fiber, muscle fiber in the heart is really important for the survival of the heart as an organ heart is an organ that has cardiac muscle and this muscle contracts for a lifetime. It never rests. It never rests for a lifetime. So the physiology is a little bit different. We'll see how different it is in terms of the type of ions that work here. The calcium, which is very important for the muscles, is even more important for the cardiac muscle and the balance of sodium and potassium. And the fact that all the fibers are connected to each other help in the case of someone who has a heart attack, myocardial infarction, which is a death of some cells of the muscle of the heart. If a group of muscles, of cell muscles die, well, the rest of the muscles are able to take over the function. If someone has myocardial infarction, the normal heart rate is 80. After that myocardial infarction, an attack, the person may have heart rate of 60 as a compensation, but it's still working. The heart's still working. And it keeps changing the rhythm and many things, uh, features of the heart contraction changes before it goes into asystole, which is a complete cessation of contraction. We usually um, apply many different methods to resuscitate or reactivate the heart, um, like defibrillation, because the heart enters into different rhythms. And it enters into different rhythms because the cells try to survive and try to take over the function. 
thanks to this electrical connection, all the cells of the heart are electrically connected. We'll get to that when we get into the heart physiology. Smooth muscle is found in the walls of organs that have a duct, they have a tube in the walls of the tubes, digestive, urinary, reproductive, blood vessels, bronchioles of the lungs, no striations, involuntary muscle. And the way they contract is different because they have proteins that contract. But those proteins, actin and myosin, are arranged in a different way than in the skeletal or cardiac muscle. That's the reason why there's no estriations. We don't see them like bands. They are organized in a different way. But they still contract. But since they are not arranged like in the skeletal and cardiac muscle, they contract in a different way. Their contraction is slower. It's called peristalsis. It's a wave-like contraction that we see in the intestines, digestive system, urinary system, a different type of contraction. Question, yes? What's that? The difference is the voluntary muscle, you can contract it with your will. You say, your brain consciously say, I'm going to move my arm, and you move it. But you cannot say, I'm going to stop my heart. Or you cannot say, I'm going to lower my heart rate from 80 to 50. No. There are different controls for that. It's automatic. Smooth muscle is involuntary. We are not conscious of, after we eat, our digestive system will start to contract. We don't notice. We don't modify that consciously. That's what it means. Now, my question is, is, you know the diaphragm? Remember the diaphragm? Where is the diaphragm? In between the thoracic and abdominal cavity. Um, is it a muscle? What kind of muscle is Skeletal, smooth, or cardiac? Well, it's not cardiac, of course. It is skeletal or smooth? Skeletal. Why? Why? Because it moves the rib cage up and down. Yeah, it contracts, it moves, but you can control it? Yeah. Yeah? Every single second? No. What if you forget to breathe? Following that reason, it will be a smooth muscle. That's why we need the physiology to explain this, how this happens. If you get a piece of diaphragm and see it under the microscope, it is a skeletal muscle. It has all the estriations. It is attached to the ribs, so it's bone to bone. Yeah, and it contracts voluntarily. You can control, yeah, you can increase your respiration. You can voluntarily breathe. You stop your breathing. You can control that. But if someone comes and tells you, well, what if you forget to breathe? I mean, are you consciously breathing every single second? No. Does that mean that it's smooth? No, because it is skeletal muscle. It is controlled at the medulla oblongata uh, in the pons, but with automatic loops. 
that sends signals. Yeah, re respiration is voluntary, but not completely conscious. There's a loop that controls that. But the diaphragm is not a smooth muscle. It is a skeletal muscle. Yeah, and the best proof is that you can hold your breath. You can stop it breathing. But you cannot hold it forever. There will be a moment at which you will have to breathe. And you cannot help it. That's why we drown. We hold our breath under the water for how long? One minute? Two minutes, perhaps? And you have to come out. Otherwise, you will breathe under the water because your brain will make you move the diaphragm. The brain doesn't know that you're under the water. The brain just detects, it's getting low on oxygen. We need to breathe. Boom. Water comes in. So the nervous tissue is found in the brain, spinal cord, the nerves. Um, neurons are the cells. Neuroglia are cells that support the neurons. And the neurons, what they do is conduct electrical impulses called action potentials. Messages. Electrical messages. That's how the nervous system works. Electrical impulses, that's how we move the muscles. The orders from the brain come down through the nerves, neurons and nerves, to the muscles in terms of electrical impulses. And that's the work of the neurons. The neurons can be very long. The axon can be long as one meter or three feet. Because some of them, they have to reach the distance from the brain to the spinal cord, or from the spinal cord down to the muscles of our legs. And it has many projections called dendrites. That's how the impulses arrive to the neuron. And a long axon, which is a long projection that sends the electrical impulse. Supporting cells of neuroglia are those these little nuclei that we see all around. They support because they help for nutrition, they help for uh, uh, keep the equilibrium of sodium and potassium and glucose for the neurons. And then we have the different types of epithelial tissue. There are many different types. They are essentially covering body structures or body surfaces, organs. They line the inside of the organs. And that classification of epithelial tissue goes in this direction. They can be simple, meaning one layer of cells, or stratified, meaning many layers of cells. Besides that criterion, or simple stratified, we classify them according to the shape of the cells, which may be squamous, cuboidal, columnar. And the stratified can also be squamous, cuboidal, or columnar. Why some organs have a simple squamous? What is the main function of the simple squamous? Epithelium. Someone who took anatomy. Remember? What is the main function of that? Why? It's just simple squamous. One layer thick. One not many layers. For what? 
I can't hear you, sorry. So that molecule can, can pass through. One layer is easier to go through than many layers. That's the main reason. That is the main reason. And the reason why it's stratified, because usually more protection. Like the skin, many layers, subject to constant lesion or damage in contact with the external world. And stratified squamous is a type of epithelium that we have in, in the skin. These are just uh, tables to show the different types and the location and some words about the function of each of these um, types of epithelium. Simple epithelial tissues, maybe a squamous, cuboidal, or columnar. Each shape is also related with some specific function, like simple squamous, rapid diffusion, like inside the lungs, for gas exchange, oxygen, carbon dioxide. Cuboidal, secretion of substances, like in glands, produce sweat glands, are cuboidal. Columnar, absorption, like in the small intestine, they are, it's lined inside by simple columnar, because it gets the nutrients that we eat, and besides processing, not only diffusion, it's simple, one layer diffusion, but also columnar, because it needs to, uh, mechanisms to process the nutrients. And the stratified in general provide protection. They provide protection. Like we mentioned the skin, this is stratified squamous epithelium. Okay, we have some examples. These are uh, examples of uh, stratified squamous epithelial non-keratinized Keratin is a protein that is produced by the epithelial cells of the skin and gives additional protection. It is usually seen on top of the apical layer, like a dense layer of a, a additional layer to cover the epithelium. As we see here, the keratinized layer on top of the many layers of cells. This is an example of a skin. Stratified squamous epithelial tissue. Connective tissues are a long list, again, of different types of tissues. In general, connective tissue comes from the word connect. They connect organs in terms of it's filling up spaces in between organs. And besides, some of them are specialized for some specific purpose. There are four different types, connective tissue proper, cartilage, bone, and blood. And the connective tissue is made up by a matrix that contains protein fibers, extracellular material, and specialized cells. It looks like a gelatin. Depending on the amount, fibers, cells, and extracellular substance, 
we have different types. There are loose connective tissue that contains collagen fibers scattered but loosely like we see in the dermis of the skin. Dense regular collagen fibers densely packed like in tendons and ligaments. And we have the loose and dense. The loose looks like a gelatin. You see collagen fibers running in different directions. But in the dense regular, you see the collagen fibers running in one direction. And that's what we find in the tendons and the ligaments. Tendons are structures that connect muscles to bone and they help to pull the bone. So the fibers must be arranged in all of them following one direction. Loose connective tissues, tissue that we find in between organs, like filling up tissue, but contains blood vessels, cells, immune system cells, dense irregular collagen fibers, densely packed, but the fibers are running in different directions. In the dermis, we can also see this, densely regular. The fibers are running in many different directions, like this, like a network. But it looks densely packed. And it's in that way because the dermis is subject to traction and pulling from different directions to prevent tearing, is that the dense irregular is arranged in that way. Adipose tissue is a specialized type of tissue, it's connective tissue, but it's specialized because it stores triglycerides or fat in the cytoplasm and big vesicles uh, helps to keep adipose tissue fat for reserves of energy. What is classified as adipose tissue, as connective tissue. Cartilage. Cartilage is a specialized, it looks like plastic. The cells are chondrocytes. It looks like plastic because the ground substance is semi-solid. We find them in the joints, covering the bones to prevent damage of the bones rubbing against each other. And the bone, hard material, mineral salts, precipitated, and being deposited around blood vessels, system, and cells um, called osteocytes. The bone has a specific structure also. The arrangement or the way that the calcium is deposited, it follows certain logic. It's not random. So we see here, these are the, what we call the uh, canalicular system or haversh system or haversian system. The calcium is deposited in concentric rings, trapping osteocytes on their way. And every circle or concentric circle of calcium, deposit of calcium, helps to increase the resistance to these structures. 
So on Thursday in the lab, we're going to have a chance to see some of these tissues under the microscope. As a practice of using the microscope, we'll get some of these tissues to see them uh, with, uh, with a microscope. So don't forget that we are studying this in the context of the levels of organization, tissues that together will make up organs, and the organs will make up systems, and that's how we're going to study all the physiology. Skin is an example of an organ, because it contains many different types of tissue. We can find epithelial tissue here, stratified squamous epithelium, we'll find connective tissue, the dermis, dense regular, I mean dense irregular connective tissue. We find muscle even, the erector pili muscle, the muscle that pulls the hairs. And nervous tissue, we have nerve endings attached to sensors, receptors on the skin. So uh, it's considered an organ. One thing that is also, it's more important for anatomy than for physiology, perhaps, is the study of the development. The development in terms of um, all this time and process from the very beginning, the initial moment of a zygote when the sperm meets the egg and we have one cell stage and then quickly two cell stage and keeps growing and developing and specializing. Many things of the anatomy, like why the heart has a shape, why here in the right side we have brachiocephalic trunk and the left side we have left common carotid and, and subclavian separated. All those things are explained by development, by how the, these organs develop early during the embryonic stage. And all these tissues and organs, they derive from only three types of embryonic tissues called embryonic germ layers, endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm. And out of these three different types of embryonic tissues or cells, all the organs will develop, nervous system, epithelial tissue, connective tissue, muscle, and so on. And those cells are called stem cells. Stem cells are of different types. The zygote first, right after the sperm meets the egg, is called a totipotent because they can turn into any type of cell, any type of cell. Like, you get the zygote, the sperm and egg get together, you have two cells, four cells, okay, each of those cells have the capacity to turn into any type of cell of the body. But then as they differentiate, and after every organ is developed, there are a few of these stem cells that allow cell replacement. Like cells of the intestine, they are replaced every 10 days, 15 days perhaps. And how they are replaced? Because there are some stem cells among the Intestinal cells, there are a few stem cells that they are just waiting for being activated and replace the cells continuously. That's how we can keep all the cells for a lifetime. Yes? So is the stem cells, uh, is it like red blood cells where states need like a 
No, that is different. The red blood cells, the red blood cells uh, have a cycle which lasts 120 days. Uh, they are produced and made in the bone marrow, in the bones. Then they are released to the blood. When they are released to the blood, they have 120 days of life. Then they are recycled by the spleen, but then they are destroyed. They also, there are also stem cells, for blood cells, which are present inside the bone, in the red bone marrow, we call it. But those stem cells that we call adult stem cells, they are limited because they cannot um, turn into any type of cell. They can turn only one type of cell. Like the stem cells that we have in intestine, they can turn into intestinal cells. They cannot turn into neurons. And they are called multipotent. Embryonic stem cells are those cells that are not completely differentiated into organs, and they're called pluripotent. Now they can type up, they can, they can turn into many different types of cells that are not related, but they are not totally potent like the zygote. So they're like intermediate. So the sequence will be the zygote, which is totally potent, any type of cell. Then, as long as they grow and develop, they turn into embryonic stem cells, which is a pluripotent. Still can turn into many types of cells, but not like the zygote. And then we have the adult stem cells, which can turn into the only one type of cell. Under stimulation, they can turn into different types of cells, and that's why the research on stem cells uh, is going on. They get skin stem, uh, skin stem cells, and through a process, they can reactivate the DNA so they can turn into a different type of cell. But that doesn't happen naturally in our body. If we have skin stem cells, they can only give place to skin cells. And where, the, where they are located in the skin, a particular place around the hair follicle, there's a region where we find most of the stem cells that uh, will replace skin cells. Okay, um, any question, any comment? Yes. What's the difference between um, holding a potent and a uh, Like, you said, like, both of them can turn into any type of cell? Like, they yeah. have, like, a distinction? So what's the difference between those two? Okay, the totipotent is a zygote. 
So as soon as experiment and egg get together, you have one initial cell. And they start turning into two cells, four cells, those are totipotents. Oh. Then as long as you have more cells, they start differentiating. They look the same, but some of them are going in the pathway to epithelial tissue, some others are going in the pathway of connective tissue. If you get them, they're still multipotent because they can turn into connective tissue, dense irregular, dense regular, loose, adipose tissue, bone. That's why we say they are, they are pluripotent. They can turn into many different types of cells, but not like the zygote, because they are more differentiated. So when two cells are and the way we do the quizzes is um, come prepare, print out the answer sheets. Okay, you bring one per day. You can print out a lot of them. But usually we have like 15 quizzes along the, the whole uh, semester. And um, I will project the questions on the screen. One slide with one question, next slide with second question, and so on. And then you answer in your answer sheets. Yes? Yeah, all multiple choice. Okay. Quizzes are multiple choice, all of them. And the recording of the lecture will be posted on your website? Yeah. 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 After the class, I will post it. And um, 